Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Holly Fry. And I'm Tracy V. Wilson. So uh, I'm doing another one of those things where I want to talk about Queen Victoria, but not really so much about Queen Victoria, but a thing that happened to her and a character is often kind of left out of biographies of her. He shows up in some and not in others, and he's kind of fascinating. So for context, Britain's King William IV died at 2.12 a.m. on June 20th of 1837, and that meant that his niece, who was Victoria, and who had turned 18 just one month earlier, was now the new monarch. Because Victoria was so young and had lived for the most part so sheltered away from the world by her mother, the Duchess of Kent, and her mother's comptroller, Sir John Conroy... I will talk about both of them at length if you get me started at a party. Uh, all of Great Britain, though, was fascinated by this young, unmarried queen. And for some people, that fascination was really intense. So simply by, by virtue of being so young and considered kind of fresh at this time when there was a lot of politics going on uh, in Great Britain that were, you know, seated in, in lots of years of bureaucracy and corruption in some cases. But this new queen, because she was new, she was romanticized, and she really became the celebrity object of affection for many young men. Uh, and today we're going to talk about one young man in particular who seemed really obsessed with the queen. And he is sometimes described as being obsessed with her, perhaps romantically, although that's not always clear in my opinion. Uh, but that obsession played out in the form of repeated break-ins at the royal residence at Buckingham Palace. Uh, I will say, knowing several people in my life who have been stalked, that if you have been stalked, this episode might alarm. And yes, for sure. Yeah. Uh, I mean, he's often like, uh, one, the main biography that I read about him specifically is called Queen Victoria's Stalker. Like, he's often referred to as the first celebrity stalker. Yeah. Uh, definitely, if, if you are creeped out by things like that, or if it is something that is a sensitive subject for you, this one may not be the episode for you. So, because of some rather ridiculous organizational arrangements regarding the keeping of the house and the grounds of Buckingham, Different government offices were often in charge of duties that overlapped in ways that just made things incredibly inefficient at the palace. For example, the laying of a fire fell under the duties of the office of the Lord Steward. The lighting of the fire was the responsibility of the Lord Chamberlain. Yeah, and those are like offices that fall under them. So it's not, it's servants under them, stuff that's communicated downward. It was very ridiculous. Um, almost any biography that you look at of Victoria or that talks about Buckingham Palace uh, during her reign will go into detail on how weird it is like that to get anything done was just like an an act of God almost like you couldn't the windows were washed inside by one group outside by another. So they were never completely clean at the same time, like just tons of crazy stuff like that. And security suffered in this system. There was actually no one person or office in charge of security. There were guardsmen who were armed, but they reported through their own structure, like a military style structure and not to the various offices of the palace. And the pages and the porters reported to completely different departments. And so none of these groups who would have theoretically been seeing things that were going on in the palace 
and kind of keeping watch over things communicated with each other at all. While the young man we're focusing on today was a persistent problem, he was not the first to exploit this problem of incredibly lax palace security. A little more than a year after Victoria became queen, a silversmith named Thomas Flower was found asleep in a chair near the monarch's monarch's bedroom. He claimed that he wanted to marry the queen, uh, but he was considered pretty much a harmless one-time offender, like this one odd outlier where he... Yeah, and he did seem pretty harmless. I mean, as someone who would break into your house goes. Right. Uh, <laughs> he was definitely, like, full of flowery language about how he thought she was pretty and he didn't want to upset anybody and, you know... But the realization that Victoria had attracted another obsessed fan and that the person in question had access to Buckingham Palace came a year and a half into her reign. And that happened on December 14th of 1838. And at around 5 a.m., Palace night porter William Cox was startled when a boy covered in soot opened the door to the room he was sitting in, stared at him for a moment, and then shut the door. And Cox opened the door to follow the boy and attempted to inquire as to whether he was there to service the chimneys, but he couldn't find anyone. He did, however, find a bag of stuff on the floor. In the bag were some clothes, coins, a book, and a dress sword. And the weapon belongs to an officer of the royal household, the Honorable Charles Augustus Murray. So Cox went to the man's room to investigate. There was no answer when Cox knocked on Murray's door. So the porter, who had access to all the palace rooms via a master key, unlocked the door and let himself in. And it was immediately apparent that the intruder had been in Murray's room. Murray himself was away at the time. But soot was everywhere, even in the bed linens, and that soot was then tracked throughout the residence. And it appeared that the boy had even been in the Queen's private apartments, going by where all of these soot smudges were. And like Murray, thankfully, the Queen was gone. She had actually stayed at Windsor Castle the night before this. So they started a hunt in earnest for this mystery trespasser, which at this point included police as well as palace staff. And he was captured, wriggled away, and then escaped through a window before he was finally nabbed by a constable out on the lawn. He turned out to be a young man of an unknown age, although estimates varied from a young teenager to possibly even a man in his early 20s. And on this boy's person were a number of stolen items, including ladies' undergarments, believed to be the queen's. They were tucked in between two layers of trousers that he wore one on top of the other. Uh, and when questioned, he claimed to be Edward Cotton of Hertford. And he offered no answers to questions regarding how he had gained access to the palace or how long he had been there. It had been presumed that he must be a chimney sweep because he was so coated with soot. The next morning, after police staff scrubbed some of the soot and dirt off of this boy who claimed to be Edward Cotton, he appeared before a magistrate. He stuck to this story that he was the son of Henry Cotton of Hertford and that he had arrived in London 12 months earlier, had met a man who helped him into the palace, and that he had been hiding in chimneys or behind furniture by day and then moving about the palace at night for all that time. This reminds me of, like, the creepy Reddit threads about people discovering that somebody is living in a tiny alcove in their attic. 
Right, or like our Hinterkaifeck episode where we talked about the person living in the attic. But uh, his story did not hold up. We'll get to that in a moment. Uh, he claimed that stolen kitchen scraps had been enough to keep him fed and that he had actually sat in on virtually every meeting that the Queen had had with her ministers during that time, like hiding behind furniture and listening to everything they said. He was not, as had been believed, a sweep, according to his story. He said he was sooty from sleeping in the chimneys during the day. Most people did not buy this story, though. Uh, kitchen supplies were not locked up tightly at night, and sleeping in a chimney by day was just a very dangerous prospect in a London winter. Uh, even with the hoops that had to be jumped through to get a fire lit in the palace, relying on multiple different departments to come and do that work. Yeah, they they were still lighting fires. <laughs> but yeah. Chimney's not not safe. He would have been potentially burned to a crisp, or uh, or die of smoke inhalation from a fire correct. in a separate fireplace that vented through the same chimney. <laughs> and so, because of suspicions that still lingered that he was a sweep, despite his claims otherwise, the main chimney sweep that was employed by the palace was consulted. Uh, he did not work for this main chimney sweep, but they asked, could this young man, you know, have worked with him at one point long enough to get the layout of the residence uh, known and then return through a chimney on his own later? And the palace sweep was like, no, he doesn't work for me. And these chimneys are designed to prevent anybody getting in that way. While the police investigated further, this young man was moved to Tothill Fields Bridewell Prison. A survey was made of the various tradesmen who had access to the palace, and many were brought to the prison to see if they knew this young man in custody. No one said they did until an older gentleman named Henry Jones showed up and claimed the boy was his 14-year-old son who had been missing since the two had a fight a week before. A third party who employed Edward Jones, not Edward Cotton, as an apprentice was summoned and corroborated this young man's identity. So then he went before the magistrate again. Uh, he, at least at that point, seemed to have the correct name. Yeah, Cotton was a, an alias. He just pulled out of the air, uh, presumably to not get himself or his family in trouble. But uh, we're going to talk about how the legal proceedings of this case and the break-in played out. But first, we're going to pause for a sponsor break. Going back to our story, when Edward Jones once again found himself in court, it was to face the formal charges for the theft of Murray's sword and other property. This time around, his story was a little different about how he had had gotten into the palace. He claimed to have followed another man in through a worker's entrance on December 11th, just three days before he was discovered. So he had abandoned that whole uh, I was there for almost a year story. Jones's barrister, William Prendergast, took a really breezy approach to defending his client. He characterized Edward as a kid who just wanted to see the inside of Buckingham Palace and who then grabbed a few items as mementos of his visit, even got a little lost in the fantasy of being a royal himself. And with all of this set up, Prendergast went on to frame the prosecution as being far too serious in pursuing serious legal action against a boy who merely had a lark of sneaking into the palace. And that defense, along with the calling of several character witnesses who assured jurors that Edward Jones was a good lad, landed the outcome that Prendergast had hoped for. The jury found Edward Jones not guilty. The press had a qu- quite a good time of covering this trial and verdict. 
while Edward was written about by some journalists with a lot of humor. Other publications found the lack of repercussions for his actions just completely unacceptable. Yeah, it was very divided. There literally were people that kind of took the the position that his barrister had of like, oh, come on, this is a kid and he did something stupid and, you know, don't let it ruin his life. And other people were like, he broke into the palace. <laughs> uh, so, so it, you know, it's easy. If the same thing happened today, we would probably see a similar division play out. Uh, and there were also satire magazines that did their whole own other take on it. But Edward uh, immediately returned to the apprenticeship that he had before his little sojourn into Buckingham, though his newfound fame came with all kinds of opportunities. Uh, he was allegedly offered passage to the U.S. to make his fortune in America. Uh, and uh, he was offered a theatrical appearance in a stage play about his story. But Edward's father, Henry, who was a tailor, turned down these offers on his son's behalf, hoping that his son would just stay the course in his work, you know, go on to be a productive adult and leave this affair at the palace completely behind him. But by late 1839, Edward had been fired from his job as a builder's apprentice because he was simply not good as an employee. He soon was offered another job, running errands for an apothecary, but that didn't last either. And after that, the young Jones was unemployed for the most part, although he did occasionally help his father out in his shop. Yeah, his work was pretty sporadic. He did a, uh, It sounds like he did a, a few other odd jobs, but he didn't really have any one job for any length of time. And in the meantime, Queen Victoria had married her cousin, Prince Albert, on February 10th of 1840. And in November, they had their first child, Princess Victoria. And the following month, just two weeks after the Princess Royal's birth, Edward Jones once again entered the picture and the palace. As the Queen's midwife, Mrs. Lilly, who slept in the nursery, was falling asleep at 1.30 a.m. on December 3rd, 1840, she heard a door creaking. She got out of bed and searched in the darkness to try to find the source of the noise. And when she saw that the door to Queen Victoria's dressing room was slowly being opened, she called out, who's there? And the door immediately slammed shut. I don't know about you, but I would freak out and lose my mind in that situation. I am freaking out now. <laughs> uh, but Mrs. Lilly was a quick thinker, and that particular do- door bolted from the side she was on. So she bolted it, and she trapped whoever had done this slamming inside. And after calling for help, she was then joined by one of the Queen's pages and the Queen's former governess, Baroness Leitzen. And the three of them then opened the door and they searched the dressing room together. They found Edward Jones curled up under a sofa. Jones was taken into custody and identified as the same intruder from two years earlier. As with the first time that he was apprehended, he was quite silent when questioned as to how he got in, how long he had been there. Lily, Litson, and the page had all been really calm about this whole affair. So the queen, who was in the next room, was not even awakened and didn't hear about it until the next day. Yes. Uh, and when she did hear about it, Victoria wrote about it in her journal. Quote, Albert told me that he had just heard when he got up that a man had been found under the sofa in my sitting room. And then she goes on to describe basically what we've just said here about how uh, Mrs. Lilly and Leighton in this page 
apprehended him, uh, says later in the same entry, she writes, quote, after he had been taken downstairs, he said he meant no harm and had only come to see the queen. We have since heard that he was in the palace once before and was half-witted and had merely come out of curiosity. But supposing he had come into the bedroom, how frightened I should have been. As you will recall, the queen had actually been away that first time that Jones had visited her apartment in the palace. And it appears that despite the news coverage of that subsequent trial, she had been spared the knowledge that a stranger had been in her personal space. And there's a lot of theorizing about why that's the case, like that it would look it would make the palace um staff look really bad. So nobody really wanted to, like be terribly public that it had happened. But in any case, it was decided that Edward Jones was going to be tried this time in a very old-fashioned way by the Queen's Privy Council. And this was a system that hadn't been employed since the Tudor period. It had historically been used to try people for treason that were so elevated that they could have easily bought the outcome of a trial in regular courts. But because Edward Jones's first trial had been something of a circus, thanks to this jovial and dismissive tone that his defense took and that people bought into, he too would be unlikely to get a serious trial in normal court. Additionally, a court trial would invite all sorts of questions about the monarchy and the palace and this incredibly lax security, none of which they were eager to invite. I think if I were the queen at this point, I would be like, I am moving rooms. So with another hearing on the horizon, we're going to pause for another sponsor break, and then we will come back to the story of Edward Jones. That sponsor is one that we both use. Yep. It is Squarespace. Uh, This podcast is brought to you by Squarespace. So whether you need a landing page or if you just want to share a gallery of amazing pictures you take, maybe you take pictures of your travels or your pets or your food and you want to share those. If you have a blog that you do either professionally or as an amateur or an online store, you can do all of that with your Squarespace website. It's super easy to set up. There's an intuitive process to get everything up and running. You can add and arrange content however you like with basically the click of a mouse. You will get a free custom domain if you like. If you sign up for a year, you will get that custom domain for free for a year. Or if you have an existing domain that you've already purchased but haven't like done anything with, which was what I had the situation of, they make it so super easy to integrate all of that together with like the least amount of stress possible. It's really amazing. The templates are gorgeous. The uh, commerce tools that you can use are super easy to integrate for a seamless experience. And Squarespace offers 24-7 customer support. And everyone that works there on their customer care team is an experienced Squarespace user. They will know what you're talking about sometimes before you even can really uh, properly <laughs> tell them because they they know where you're going when you start using certain words. Uh and it's just an amazing experience. I love it. I have my sewing blog there. Tracy did her wedding blog or her wedding page there. Yep. Uh, I love it. I love my Squarespace. So you can set your website apart and also use Squarespace. If you would like to do that, you can start your free trial today at squarespace.com. Enter the offer code history and you're going to get 10% off your first purchase. So again, that is squarespace.com slash history. And once again, set your website apart. With the Privy Council assembled and the hearing underway, Edward told the assembly that when he was found in the Queen's dressing room, that was actually the second time in rapid succession that he had entered the palace unobstructed. 
According to Jones's testimony, he had scaled a wall of the gardens and entered the palace through a window on Monday evening. He hoped to steal a snack, but there were too many people around, so he left. He returned Tuesday night, wandered around for a bit, and slept under the bed of one of the servants during the day Wednesday. So creepy. I creeped myself out reading that sentence. Yeah, really creepy. Uh, Wednesday night, once everyone had settled in for the evening, he once again explored the palace. This time, eventually making his way to the throne room and having a seat in the monarch's chair. Uh, he then wandered around the queen's rooms, eventually settling under the sofa where he had been found. So it's unclear if the door opening and closing that alerted Mrs. Lilly had been a thwarted effort on his part to wander a bit more. But if so, uh, after he had realized he had been seen, he apparently went right back to his under-the-sofa hiding place. After investigating the wall that Edward claimed to have scaled and calling in the young man's father, Henry Jones, to scold him for letting his son behave so poorly and debating over Edward's uh, mental soundness, the Privy Council opted to issue a punishment of three months hard labor. Additionally, this whole incident catalyzed a big examination of the palace security, as well it should have. Probably the first time. Or even yeah. before that, when or the other guy got in. Ever. <laughs> yeah. Uh, a press release was made giving only scant information about the activities of Jones and how his hearing had played out. But because this story was so tantalizing, the press hunted down more details. And it eventually became known that Edward Jones was in the Tothill Street House of Corrections, and he was happy to talk about all of his adventures in the kitchen and the throne room and other areas of the palace. So it wasn't long before all of the particulars of this event were public knowledge. Jones told the press that he had gained access to the palace through a chimney uh, rather than the more mundane window entry, which, by the way, investigation had verified because they had found marks on the windowsill that he claimed he had come in through. Uh, he also said that he was going to write a book about this whole thing. See, that's where we get into rewarding bad behavior. Oh, yeah, that's going to happen a lot. Edward Jones was released from his incarceration on March 2nd, 1841, into the custody of his father. He continued to enjoy a certain level of celebrity because papers were happy to print any details that they could about him. Looky-loos would loiter outside the family home, hoping to get a glimpse of the person who was so very good at waltzing right into Buckingham Palace. And as we mentioned earlier, the repeat appearance of Edward Jones in the palace had led to a close look at the security problems there. Since that second break-in by Jones, the royal home had been guarded regularly by more than two dozen police at all times. So it came as something of a surprise when Edward Jones was found once again inside Buckingham Palace in the wee hours of March 16th, 1841, just two weeks after he had finished his hard labor sentence. This time, a police sergeant, Glover, was was patrolling when he heard a noise, and then when he followed it to the picture gallery, he found a pair of dirty shoes on the floor. Jones was in a nearby alcove eating cold meat and potatoes from the kitchen. This third time around, when Edward was asked how he got in, he simply said that he had done it the same way as before. Not giving details as to what that way was, but just saying, oh, same way I always do. Uh, when questioned the following morning by the police, he told them that he was gathering information for his book and that he had hoped to uh, eavesdrop on and record a conversation between the Queen and Prince Consort for that book. 
Jones told the inspectors that he had seen a library and read some of the books, which he proved by naming several of the books on the shelves, and that he had handled a coronet and some jewels. He was next taken before the the Privy Council for further questioning. And this time, after their last uh, dealings with Edward Jones resulted in a huge press drama and him getting famous for it, the Privy Council moved really swiftly and they kept a very tight lid on information. Jones was once again sentenced to three months hard labor and the press went hungry when it came to details. But just the same, innumerable articles were printed about the boy Jones, as he was called at this point. And all of these were based pretty much on speculation and in some case entirely fabricated information that was posing as facts. Some, as before, seemed to be on Jones's side. They sort of thought it was kind of hilarious and great that this commoner could just stroll into the palace. Uh, others were, of course, staunchly against his behavior, recognizing that it was horrible and creepy. And yet others just wanted to capitalize on the story by printing various satirical pieces about it, often at the expense of the royal family. And somewhat famously, banker and diarist Thomas Rakes wrote in his journal at the time, quote, A little scamp of an apothecary's errand boy named Jones has the unaccountable mania of sneaking privately into Buckingham Palace, where he is found secreted at night under a sofa or some other hiding place. No one can divine his object, but twice he has been detected and conveyed to the police and put into confinement for a time. The other day he was detected in a third attempt with apparently uh, as little object. Lady Sandwich wrote that he must undoubtedly be a descendant of Inigo Jones, the architect. And this was, of course, a play on the name of the 16th century Welsh architect Inigo Jones, who constructed the Queen's House at Greenwich and Covent Garden, among other famous structures. So, although it seemed like Edward Jones was really only good at one thing, which was getting into Buckingham Palace... He was really good at it, so much so that at that point it had made him a massive celebrity, far beyond the levels of fame his first two intrusions had garnered. And what became of Edward Jones after this is a whole other story. And so we're going to wait and share that in our next episode. Sorry to be all cliffhanging again, but uh, his life story plays out in some really weird and fascinating ways. Uh, I don't beyond- like this little creeper. <laughs> Lots of people didn't, and some very bad things do happen to him along the way. But, uh, yeah, it's very weird. Like, the idea that this person just repeatedly was showing up in the palace and, like, very close to where the royal family was. Yeah. You know, per- sort of- particularly when you consider, like, that there were points where he was there when a tiny infant was there. There was lots of, like, speculation going around the palace of, like, what if he had snatched the princess? Mm -hmm. Like, what if he had just taken this two-week-old infant? Yeah, yeah. You know, he was just strolling around. It reminds me a bit of uh, our live shows about presidential assassinations uh, and sort of the progression of there being literally any security around the president. (laughs) Yeah. Because, like, some of the earlier attempts were like, and then a guy just walked up. And he just was there. And then it became, okay, now we actually have the Secret Service. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Super duper strange. Uh, and creepy. Because nobody wants somebody random just hanging out in their house and going through their stuff and stealing their undergarments and eating their food. No, that's creepy and gross. It's super creepy. Do you also have listener mail? And is it not creepy? It is not only not creepy, it is 
awesome. I love it. This is one of those things. We get lots of listener mail. It's all pretty great, but every once in a while you open one and you're just like, this is great, great, great. And that's this one. Uh, it is from our listener, Crystal, and she included a card. It's a little gift I will tell you about in a moment. But in her card, she said, uh, Dear Holly, I'm a longtime listener all the way back to 2009 and find the podcast most delightful with its current hosts. Thank you so much. That's so sweet. Uh, I'm redecorating my house and I'm getting rid of books I don't need or want anymore. And when I saw this one, I thought of you. Thanks again for the awesome podcast. Uh, Crystal is uh, the princess of my heart because not only did she write that card on a cute Victorian Halloween card, but uh, the book is French fashion illustrations of the 1920s. So it's amazing and it's sweet and it's just so thoughtful and it's cool. It's fashion clothes from the 20s. And it's sort of these little isolated illustrations that were from uh, La Vie Parisienne. And I absolutely love it. It's the sweetest thing. Thank you so much, Crystal. I cannot even tell you how much I love this and sat at my desk pouring over it yesterday when I should have been doing work, work, work. But you got to pause and appreciate these things. So that is the scoop. That is my my delightful book that came from Crystal, who was very sweet and thoughtful of us and wrote very nice things. Thank you, Crystal. We appreciate you so much. If you would like to write to us, you can do so at uh, History Podcast at HowStuffWorks.com. We're also on Facebook.com slash History, on Pinterest as in History, on Twitter at in History, on Instagram at in History. We're on Tumblr as in History. We basically are in History everywhere you could want to go and find us. Uh, if you would like to do a little research about whatever is knocking around in your head, you can go to HowStuffWorks.com, uh, do a search for something in the text bar, see what you come up with, or you could just tootle around the site and see what fun things reveal themselves to you. You can also visit me and Tracy at mistinhistory.com where we have all of our episodes of the show ever from way back to the first hosts and we have show notes for any of the episodes that Tracy and I have worked on and we encourage you, come and see us. Visit at mistinhistory.com and howstuffworks.com For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com.